Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 24, titled Get Your Creek On, wherein we discuss the new voice of the young, urban, upwardly mobile American woman. Hey, Mike. Hey, Bobby. Happy almost New Year. Well, thank you, Mike. Happy almost New Year to you as well. Any uh, plans? You mean for the holiday weekend or for 2013? <laughs> for the rest of your life, I guess. <laughs> My immediate plans for 2013 were, are to somehow achieve 2014. <laughs> but that's about as specific as I can get. All right. So I am going to read some listener feedback. First off is Braden Stewart, who wrote on iTunes, I've been listening to this podcast since it began, but I've not felt compelled to leave a review until now. Good is up. That was our last episode about metaphor in the fiscal cliff. Good is up, blew my mind. As I was listening, I thought, quote, my mind was just blown. Then I realized that was a metaphor. It blew again. Thank you guys for caring so deeply about things so mundane. Once again, Mike, another kind of left-handed compliment. <laughs> I'll take it. Thank you, Mike and Bob, for another 30 minutes of ordinariness. <laughs> I think blowing his mind could hardly be called ordinary. And in fact, somebody else wrote in about that episode to tell us that it made him or her realize that much of language is simply fossilized metaphor, which I thought was a really interesting way to think about it. It is. And of course, it's a metaphor itself. It is that as well. Finally, I wanted to read an email that we got, an unsigned email, which said the following... Lexicon Valley, colon, a pair of aging flaneur sitting at the philologist's club, sifting with bony fingers through the leaves of worm-eaten etymologies and foxed hermeneutic journals that are bound in hide and sealed with the horse glue of Anglo-Frisian decay. It's fucking brilliant. Wow. You know, he had me sitting there imagining him, imagining us, 
as about to be rendered by sunlight into dust. (laughs) 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 But he likes it. Yeah, it took a real turn at the end there. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Well, okay, so that's very nice and very flattering, and that's uh, some vivid prose, that there. But I got to ask you, Mike, we seem to begin every episode these days with one of these laudatory letters, and they're always news to me, and it's uh, certainly a delight to hear someone praising us. But tell me again why we do this. Well, I mean, do you get this praise in your ordinary life? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) See? No, emphatically no on that question. (laughs) See, you need it. Yeah. No, it's good. It's like a weekly fix. All right, today's episode. Today's episode is about a kind of speech affect that you, Bob, have observed and have been curious about. Describe for me this phenomenon that you say you've noticed. It's almost exclusively among women and young women at that and girls. At some point, as they utter a sentence or a phrase— Somewhere between halfway and the very end of the phrase, something happens to their voice as if they had a catch in their throat. Mike, rather than just describing it, let me try it with a live human being. I have an 11-year-old who does not speak this way but can. So let me grab her right now. Ida, be um, obnoxious. I was going to like go to the mall with Jason, but he's so self-centered. Now, it's not the bop part of it, you know, the kind of loop-the-loops that she did with her inflections there, Mm -hmm. but it was the uh, in self-centered that is exactly the phenomenon I'm trying to describe. And it's annoying. I mean, it's really annoying. So in linguistics, this thing that you're talking about is often referred to as creaky voice. I mean, it sounds sort of like a door creaking or a hinge that needs oiling. Mm Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a a prominent 20th century phonetician. He's now deceased. His name is Ian Catford. He wrote that the auditory effect of creaky voice was of, quote, a rapid series of taps like a stick being run along a railing, which I think is a little bit exaggerated. Another linguist called it pulses of low frequency. And in the academic literature, you often see the phrase vocal fry, to describe it. Yeah, that's what I've seen, vocal fry. And I don't understand how the word fry got in there, but somehow it just sounds right. Well, you can imagine oil popping in a pan, and it sounds a little bit like this Ah. effect. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I get it now. And I want the oil to stop frying. I want someone to wave a magic wand over a significant portion of the American public and have the frying come to an end. So let's forget about creaky voice in particular for just a moment. If you think about it, we change the way we say certain words or phrases all the time in order to convey different nuances, right, or different emotions. Take, for example, the phrase, get out, G-E-T-O-U-T. If you told me, Bob, that, you know, Jack and Jill broke up and Jack was now dating Jill's sister, I might say, get out, in a kind of breathy voice. And my breathy voice conveys shock and a sort of feigned incredulity. Like, I don't think you're lying to me, but it's unbelievable, right? Yeah, although now convention has it that you don't say get out, you say, shut up! (laughs) Well, I'm still from the get out generation. Mm -hmm. 
Now, if you told me that you were thinking about moving to Antarctica, I might say, get out. In that case, my creaky voice conveys actual incredulity. I don't in any way believe that you're thinking about moving to Antarctica. You're intentionally affecting a creek in order to convey genuine skepticism. Yeah. And if I wanted you to leave, I might simply say, Bob, get out in my regular voice or what linguists call modal voice, the voice that you normally speak with. All right. So I I never really thought of that. But what you're describing is altering not only word choice and expression, but the actual vocal characteristics of the words in order to convey extra information. Yeah, exactly. These are referred to as different phonations or voice qualities. Now, what if I were to tell you that there is a language for which both that breathy voice that I did and the creaky voice are sort of organically built in? Shut up! (laughs) Get out! (laughs) There is such a language. It's called Alapamazatec. It's an indigenous language of Mexico. And here's how it works. The vowels in this language can be expressed with a regular voice a breathy voice, or a creaky voice, and depending on which of those you use, you can entirely change the meaning of a word. For example, there's a word that, if you express the vowel sound with a breathy voice, means horse. Here's an actual recording of a native speaker saying the word. I looped it a bunch of times so you could really get a sense of what it sounds like. If you say that same word, but express the vowel with a creaky voice... It sounds something like, which means buttocks or rear end. So, in da, in da, is a horse's ass. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. I'm not fluent enough. Yeah, well, hold that thought. It may be coming up again. (laughs) So, you can see that speakers of Alapamazatec use creaky voice linguistically. Mm -hmm. Speakers of American English and of many other languages, too, use it paralinguistically. In other words, to indicate some kind of metadata or subtext of what we're saying. And the question I think you're wondering, Bob, is do certain groups in our population, you've identified women and specifically young women, do they use creaky voice disproportionately, more frequently than others, and if so, why? Well, now, it's not really my question. That's an assertion. I'm I'm quite categorical about it, even though I don't have any data I simply know I'm right. My question, though, and I'm skeptical about this, is whether there is any meaning conveyed by this sound or whether it's just a sort of mindless affectation. And I got to tell you, all of my chips are stacked on the mindless affectation thing, as inexplicable as a lot of the other kind of vocal tics that come in and out of fashion for young people and young women especially. You don't have any data, and in fact, there's not a lot of data. There's not a ton of research on this question, but there is some, and several linguists have conjectured about what might be going on. Let's talk about some of that research, but first, let's take a break and talk about our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of audiobooks on the internet. Audible has 100,000-plus audiobooks to choose from that you can listen to right on your iPhone or Android phone or whatever other smartphone you have. They have a special offer for Lexicon Valley listeners. If you sign up for a free 30-day trial membership, you get one free audiobook of your choice. 
You just have to go to audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon, and you can choose from current New York Times bestsellers, classics, children's books, mysteries, one of my favorite genres, science fiction. Your membership also includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. Give it a try. Use the URL that Audible set up for us. It's audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. Okay, back to Creaky Voice. I'm going to tell you about two different studies, Bob, from the past decade, which taken together create perhaps a circumstantial case, and then you can draw your own conclusions. Study number one. There's a sociolinguist named Barry Penick Speck, who was born in England and has taught for many years at the University of Valencia in Spain, where in addition to having many native Spanish students, of course, he's had a lot of British and American students as well who are studying abroad. Penick Speck observed that American female students in particular had what he called, quote, noticeably creaky voices, and that all the other students of this nationality shared this trait to a certain extent. And he hypothesized that for whatever reason, in America, this creaky voice had become, as he put it, a prestigious characteristic of contemporary female speech. Well, this man is obviously a genius, (laughs) and I wholeheartedly endorse his findings, however tentative. To test this hypothesis, he did something interesting. He investigated the amount of creak in the speech of American actresses who have played both American women and British women. So, for example, Gwyneth Paltrow plays an American woman in the movies Duets and Shallow Hal. She affects a British accent for Emma in Shakespeare in Love. Renee Zellweger plays an American in Jerry Maguire. She affects a British accent for Bridget Jones's Diary. And Reese Witherspoon plays an American in Legally Blonde, affects a British accent for the importance of being earnest. What he found when he studied all of these films was that Creek was far more prevalent in the American English of these actresses than in their British English. And in fact, it was often hardly present at all in their British English. Hmm. I guess his finding is that the American actresses Creek in their American voiced roles because they associate that with authentic American female speech, but don't do so in their British roles because they don't associate the vocal fry with British English. That's essentially, I think, what his assertion is. And, you know, you can decide for yourself if you think that, say, Reese Witherspoon is creaking in Legally Blonde. She plays a character named Elle Woods, an American from California. And here's a clip from that movie. I have a bachelor's degree in fashion merchandising from CULA, and I was a Zeta Lambda New sweetheart, president of my sorority, Delta Nu, and last year I was homecoming queen. Oh, two weeks ago, I saw Cameron Diaz at Fred Siegel, and I talked her out of buying this truly heinous Angora sweater. Whoever said orange is the new pink was seriously disturbed. Okay, Mike, I would describe that as ominous. It's much less exaggerated than what we hear now. That movie was from like at least 10 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I heard from Reese Witherspoon was sort of a proto-fry. The hints, the extremely foreboding hints of a generational tick to come. Well, let's say that you're not attuned to this creaky sound and you feel that you can't hear it. You can actually see it. I record this podcast using a program called Pro Tools, which is 
software that represents our voices as a waveform in time. And I mentioned before that creaky voice is sometimes described as short pulses. That's, in fact, what it looks like as a waveform. If I elongate a vowel using my regular voice, you know, if I say, ah, you get a nice, even waveform. But if I do it in creaky voice, if I say, ah, the waveform exhibits, as it's called, both shimmer and jitter. (laughs) In other words, irregularity in the amplitude of the wave and irregularity in the period of the wave. So listen again to two snippets of that Reese Witherspoon clip that I've looped. And if you pay close attention to the words sweater and disturbed, you'll really hear the creak. Truly heinous Angora sweater. Truly heinous Angora sweater. Truly heinous Angora sweater. With seriously disturbed. With seriously disturbed. With seriously disturbed. Okay, you convinced me. And now I'm thinking, oh my God, if only we had acted 10 years ago. If we'd only seen what was coming Perhaps we could have saved ourselves. But again, Mike, um, that's taken from a movie. And it seems to me, based on not a whole lot of data, but a whole lot of exposure to my daughter Ida's TV viewing, which is a lot of Disney sitcoms, that film and TV are pretty much denuded of the vocal fry. I guess because the actresses are discouraged from doing it, maybe because it's so vulgar and annoying. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, the movies are movies, and real life is, of course, different, which brings us to study number two, which is from just a few years ago. It was conducted by a linguist at UC Berkeley named Ukuko Yuasa. In her study, there were about 30 subjects, 10 young American men, 10 young American women, and 10 young native Japanese women. They were all late teens to early 30s, And most of them were students or graduate students at Berkeley. And what Yuasa did was record each of them having a 10-minute conversation about food with another person who was not part of the study. She then analyzed a random 400-word chunk of every conversation, noting every word that contained creakiness. And she didn't just rely on her ear to determine whether or not there was creak in a word. She confirmed it by looking at both the waveform, as I described earlier, and at a spectrogram, which is something that measures the frequency of your voice. And it turns out that creakiness shows up in a spectrogram as a series of vertical striations. It's very distinct. What she found confirms, I think, what you've been hearing, Bob. American women exhibited creak twice as much as both American men and Japanese women. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) And by the way, I watch a lot of foreign films. Now, of course, I've just made the point that films are perhaps not the best place to identify this phenomenon, but I've never encountered it in the voices of young German speakers or young French speakers or young British English speakers. You know, I think this is something from that is unique to the good old USA, at least for the moment. Well, Yuasa concluded that there was some sort of what she called sociocultural motivation for American women to creak. And so to kind of get at what this sociocultural motivation might be, she did something else really interesting with these recorded conversations that she had. She took a particularly creaky snippet of a conversation from one of the American women and also a snippet from that same woman that was not at all creaky. And she played them both for a total of about 175 college students, both at Berkeley 
and at the University of Iowa. So two totally separate regions of the country. One of the questions they were asked was, what kind of impressions, such as personality traits or occupation, does the woman in voice two project from her voice only as compared with the woman in voice one? Now, of course, they were the same woman, but voice two was the creaky voice and voice one was not. About 60% of the students responded to that question with phrases like, and these are actual words and phrases that they used, professional, not yet a professional, but on her way there, graduate student, looking for her career, urban. Some of them listed actual locations, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles. Wait, 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 wait. This is for the creaky version of the woman's voice? Yeah, exactly. You mean there were positive associations among her demographic for the creakosity? <laughs> yeah, I'll read to you what Akuko Yuasa concludes from this. She says that creaky voice is, quote, an increasingly common part of young American women's unconscious performance, projecting an image of contemporary, urban, upwardly mobile women. Oh, dear God. <laughs> I didn't think that would sit well with you. Mike, that's horrifying. You know, I assumed that it would lead to lower population growth. Because on top of everything else, to my ear, it's so repulsive. And yet it's deemed sophisticated by our next generation of leaders? Yeah, it's deemed sophisticated by even students who don't necessarily themselves creak, but are listening to somebody else creak. And let me mention what I think is another really interesting point. The regular modal male voice is on average about an octave lower than the female voice. If for the average male voice, the frequency is, say, somewhere around 300 hertz, a female voice would average maybe around 600 hertz, give or take. These are rough numbers. It turns out, and this has been confirmed with spectrographs, that a creaky voice for both men and women occurs at the exact same frequency, a very low frequency between only about 30 and 40 hertz. Oh, my God. Well, that that actually is something because till this moment, I've been at a loss to imagine what could possibly prompt anybody to affect this kind of vocalization. But what you're suggesting is that because it lowers the pitch, it's uh, a masculinizing of the higher-pitched female voice for whatever perceived benefit. Yeah, precisely. And in fact, Barry Penick Speck, who conducted the study that I mentioned earlier with movies, he says that, quote, it is possible to conjecture that what is happening is that women are converging with men as far as pitch is concerned, possibly in an attempt to be like them. As women are becoming more and more integrated in the workplace and are sharing more and more roles with men, it is conceivable that convergence in this area is a positive step for them. So he's conjecturing, and others have too, that women deem this creek a kind of authoritative male-like sound, and they've adopted this as a way to kind of consciously or unconsciously sound more like men. Having said all of that, there are linguists who are skeptical. So let's assume that young American women creak far more often, twice as often as young American men and twice as often as young Japanese women. Do they, though, 
Creek more often than they did 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago. We don't know that. There was nobody studying this in that way 50 years ago. I know it. I know it in my bones. I know it in my ear bones, in my anvil and my stirrup. (laughs) I know it. But it may be the case that you, Bob, and others of your ilk suffer from something that we've talked about on this podcast before, which is the recency illusion, this mistaken impression that some phenomenon is more recent than it in fact is. You can hear, if you listen to old movies of Mae West, you can hear her creaking. You know, I, I always did like a man in a uniform. That one fits you grand. I should come up sometimes, see me. I'm home every evening. Yeah, but I'm busy every evening. Busy? So what are you trying to do, insult me? No, no, not at all. I'm just busy, that's all. You see, we're holding meetings in Jacobson's Hall every evening. Anytime you have a moment to spare, I'll be glad to have you drop in. You're more than welcome. I heard you. (laughs) You ain't kidding me any. You know, I met your kind before. Why don't you come up sometime, huh? Well, I... Don't be afraid. I won't tell. But, uh... (laughs) Come up, I'll tell your fortune. Oh, you can be had. <laughs> uh, you know, one outlier piece of tape, no matter how cherished a part of American cultural history, does not put me off of my conclusions. But it does remind me, Mike, it's an opportunity to call upon our listeners, especially our international listeners, to not just send us these generous notes of appreciation, which we do appreciate, but to dig into their popular cultures. And we can get several questions answered at once. One, as you say, is there a recency illusion here? Does this vocal tick go back more than the 10 years that I've suggested? Is it significantly present in movies and television? Or is it filtered out of video culture? And finally, is it really a purely American phenomenon or is it global and are we all doomed worldwide. Well, if you can answer any of the questions that Bob posed, and, you know, people have lives and jobs, Bob. I'm not sure that they can go through their movie cultures and find examples. But if you can, feel free to write to us at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. You can find all of our past episodes at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. If you have not already subscribed to our podcast in iTunes, please do so where you can leave a rating and a review. I want to thank Barbara Blankenship at the UCLA Phonetics Lab who helped me locate those recordings of the native Alapa Mazatec speaker. I want to thank Barry Penick Speck who very generously sent me some of his research. And of course, Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcast. All right, Mikey. We done here? Uh, yeah, we're done. <laughs> Later, Gator. Happy New Year.